King of kings and Lord of lords. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking, uh, as we've been building through the book of Matthew in this these first chapters, um, we've spent the first three weeks of Advent in chapter 1. Today we'll look at chapter 2 and the rest of what Matthew says about this Christmas nativity Advent time. He doesn't really spend time on the the nativity, the actual um, birth of Christ. Um, How's that, Dennis? Better? Okay. Um, He doesn't spend time on on the actual birth of Christ. We'll see that in the Gospel of Luke next week. We'll take a look there with the proclamation. But today, as we are um, as we are pressing on into this Advent idea, the the idea of Christ's coming, we're gonna we're gonna see a different take in Matthew two than what we saw at the end of Matthew one. And what we see in Matthew two really is uh, is the Uh, the emphasis that he's been building. When we started in Matthew 1, Matthew was, was establishing the identity, the background of Christ as the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, uh, as the, the one who would come from David's line uh, in keeping with God's promise that, that an heir from David's family would uh, reign forever over Judah. Well, now in chapter 2, we see that those outside of Israel are recognizing this as well. We'll just read the first two verses to begin with, and we'll come back to it later. So you may want to keep your Bibles open there. Here's how Matthew records it, starting with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has, born, who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Let's pray. Father God, it is our purpose and intent today to look into your word that we might know you that we might receive information from your word, guided by your spirit. Lord, we acknowledge that this is a spiritual book and we cannot see it through eyes of flesh. We can see words, we can understand concepts, but we can't understand the truth that you reveal to us in it, apart from the guidance and illumination of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we humbly ask that you would do that now today. Even as we seek to look into your book, Lord, help us to recognize that your book is looking into us. That your word judges us as Jesus said it would. So even in this moment, Father, by your great spirit, take hold of us. Convict us of any sin that we've not dealt with. Help us to to humble ourselves, to come on our knees before you and and offer that up to you. We have nothing else to offer. Everything that, that we might think to offer you is only an insult to your greatness. Our very best is like filthy rags. So Lord, we offer you our hearts. We offer you our sinfulness in exchange for your righteousness. Not because we deserve it, not because we have a right to it, but because you have offered it. So Lord, speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue. You know the the things that will tend to block my focus. You know the heart of every individual listening, the things that will tend to block their focus. We recognize that the enemy seeks to to snatch the seed before it is planted. 
we ask, Lord, that you would protect us from his voice. That nothing that would exalt itself above the knowledge of you would have a place in our minds and our hearts right now. Help us, Lord, to hear only you. And change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we uh, have been working through this Advent season, we've endeavored to answer the question, what child is this? We, We want to understand, at least to the extent that we're able, we want to better understand the Christ who came. The one who was promised, the one who came with purpose, to be God's presence among us and the one who holds all power. The first week of Advent, we we discussed the idea that the coming of Christ was God's perfect plan from the beginning, that he was foretold since the garden, and that even though the, the promise of his coming is ancient from of old, the Christ who came is himself eternal. In week two, we took a look at this idea of purpose, that the Christ who came, came to save. The promise of the Christ was innately tied to his purpose. The Christ was to be the fulfillment of all that God had promised his people. And the Christ who came would save his people from their sins. This is why he was given the name Jesus. God is our salvation. God saves. His purpose was to save us from sin. Last week, we considered the idea of his presence, that the Christ is God, and not only God himself, but God with us. His coming fulfilled God's promise, and it served God's purpose of redeeming a people for himself. It also expressed God's personal love for his people. God created for us an intimate relationship with him. He created us for that relationship, and he created that relationship for us. Unfortunately, sin destroyed that relationship. And his love, unlike yours and mine, his love is so great that he sent his son for wretched sinners like us, not only to save us, but to reveal himself to us more completely. The Christ who came would be God with us. Today, we consider Christ's coming in power. The babe in the manger came in weakness and humility. But there is a king coming to rule and to reign, and it's the same king. In the person of Christ, God condescended to walk among us, but he never stopped being who he was, is, and ever shall be. The baby in the manger was Lord of all from eternity past to all eternity future. And he will return to judge the earth. In fact, that's our core reality for today. The Christ who came will reign in power forevermore. Let me say that again. I pray that it would find its home deep in your heart and in mine. The Christ who came will reign in power forevermore. So much of our focus at Christmas time centers on the Christ coming as a baby in a manger and the events of his first advent. So much so that, that we often neglect to remember the reality and the centrality of the Christ revealed as the great king of all kings to be revealed in his second advent. That's our focus today. So without further ado, we can jump into filling in blanks. We're going to take a look first at Matthew 2. Notice this, Christ's identity as king is fundamental. Christ's identity as king is fundamental. Now, last week we established that, that Christ is God. We saw in John 1 that he was, uh, the word was with God in the beginning, and the word was God, and everything that was created, we know that God created all things, everything that was created was created through Christ, the word. Christ himself is God. 
We saw in Colossians 1 that he is supreme over all things and that he is the invisible God made visible for us. We saw in in Hebrews 1 that he is the exact representation of the Father. He is the radiance of the Father's glory. Christ, if he is God, then everything that is true of God must be true of Christ. That means that all of the glory of God is in the glory of Christ. All of the sovereignty of God belongs to Christ. So, in Matthew chapter 2, this is, uh, this is building out what he's already established. Now, understand, if you were with us last spring, we took a look at Matthew, and the, the goal of Matthew's gospel, his purpose in writing, is to give us a portrait of Christ as David's son. He's the son of David. He is the king. So Christ the king is the theme of Matthew. As you go through the book of Matthew, you see that recurring theme emphasized over and over again. In fact, before we look at Matthew 2, flash back to the beginning of chapter 1. Okay, He starts with the ever-exciting genealogy. We all love it when the genealogies come up. You get a bunch of names that we don't recognize. But these genealogies are here by God's decree, by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, so that we would see an important truth. And he starts with, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I won't read through the genealogy again for you, but you'll notice in here that there is, this is through David's kingly line, and yet throughout you see common people, even people of bad reputation. You see people who are, are from the wrong side of the tracks, if you will. For folks from outside of Israel. And yet all feeding into this royal line, Judah's line, as was promised in Genesis, that the scepter would never depart from Judah. Through David's line, as God promised David when David sought to build God a temple, to build him a house, God said, you're going to build me a house? Nah, bro, I'm going to build you a house. And I'm going to build you an eternal house, not a physical place, but a family, a family line. And your throne will always be my throne. And the, at, at one point when the time has fully come, there will be one who comes from this line, who will be the Messiah, who will be the one we've waited for promised in Genesis 3, the serpent crusher, who would come and set all things right as he crushes the serpent's head. Coming through Abraham, now God promises coming through David. It's a kingly line. He refers to him in, in Matthew 1, 21, uh, as Jesus, God is our salvation because he would save his people from their sins. And immediately following, <clears throat> excuse me, Immediately following, as we saw uh, previously in, in uh, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Everybody say what that means. You know, God with us. God present with his people this child who would be born would be God, the king of all kings, and he would be with us. Now, Matthew jumps ahead. All of that is leading up to the, the child being born. He doesn't give a lot of details about it. We have the vision, we have the, the angel come, uh, and the scandals put aside as the angel says, don't worry, Joseph, Mary hasn't been unfaithful. The child conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Here's how this is going to work. Joseph then obeys, takes Mary to be his. They, uh, they, they don't have uh, marital relations until after the child is born. When the child is born, is named Jesus. And he's known by who he is as God with us. And then, jump ahead, after the, this child was born, now this is probably a two-year gap, 
up to a two-year gap, somewhere in there. We get this idea from greeting cards and things like that, that, that the wise men, the magi, came to the, to the manger. Well, we'll see a little later here. They don't come to a, a manger. They come to the house. And Herod is going to do a terrible thing and try to eliminate the child. And to make sure that he eliminates the child, he's going to kill all the babies who are under two years old. So somewhere in that gap, when they've already returned to the house, they've already gone home and established a home here. And up to two years, this is when the Magi arrive. All right, so with that, let's take a look at the chapter itself. <clears throat> Starting again with 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. I don't have time, because it's not our purpose today, uh, to look deeply at who these Magi were. We don't know uh, much from them, uh, much about them from Scripture, and history has them somewhat shrouded in mystery, but they appear to be um, a, a tribe of priests, of royal priests, who uh, come from the, the Medes, and uh, it's an ancient tribe that ends up uh, having a place. We see them show up in the book of Daniel. Uh, when we see the, the wise men and the counselors to the king, these are of the Magi and ought to probably be translated that way. When we see Magi here, it's not a translation. It's often uh, uh, corrupted in our English and it led to words like magic and magician, but that's not really its original meaning. Uh, it's, it, it comes from just the plural of the Greek magoi, magos, magoi, and it has to do with these these priestly royal priests who were close counselors to kings and some scholars even say that they were the king makers there's not universal agreement on that but these were the, the ones who were appointed to approve and anoint kings whether that's true or not what we do see is a close tie to daniel's babylon and when daniel rose up among he was he was put in charge of these magi, these counselors. And as he did this, the God of Daniel was never compromised. If you know anything about the story of Daniel, he was so intent on not compromising his worship of the one true God that he was willing to be, uh, be put into a lion's den. Right, So he goes through this, God uh, rescues him, uh, the king recognizes Daniel's God, all of these amazing things that happen in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Well, later on, when Judah is exiled into Babylon and Babylon takes them in, not only do you already have, uh, have this uh, initial exile that included Daniel and many others, now you have the full exile as Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, and when, it, when they return under Cyrus, many of them don't return. They choose to stay in Babylon. So you have the prophecies and the scriptures from the Hebrew Bible present in Babylon. And who do you suppose would get a hold of those things? Those who were maintaining the wisdom and education in this priestly line, the Magi, who are now fully aware of these prophecies of the king who would come. And they would look at things like Numbers 24, 17, when corrupt Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I, I behold him, but not near. A star will, will rise. A scepter will come out of Jacob, this ruling one. So as they see these things, you spin that forward to now and they show up saying we've been watching this where's the king but don't miss out on the idea that there's already a king so called you've got this corrupt king Herod who's not uh, truly king of the Jews but he's placed as king of the Jews here under this Roman rule and he's not really interested in rivals let's continue Where's the one who was born king of the Jews? 
We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. So in case, in case it's so familiar that it moves past us, just take a second, pretend you haven't heard the story before, and notice he equates this king with the Christ. There's no question in Herod's mind, he doesn't like it, but there's no question about it, that the king who is born is God's anointed one. The one who had been promised. The one who is to come and rule over Israel forever. The one from David's line. The offspring of Abraham. To bless the nations. To rule in justice. He knows the prophecies of Isaiah, as Gary read for us earlier from Isaiah 9. He recognizes everything that's going on there and he doesn't like it. There's a king who's been born, and it's the Christ. So he goes to those who know the the scriptures better than he does, calls together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, and he asks them where this Christ was to be born. Where can I find the Messiah? Verse 5, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And we've got to look at this again. We've got to keep stopping so that we don't miss the important things here. Bethlehem was a puny little town. Unimportant as far as cities go. If you went there, it's like... It makes Galen look like a big place, right? This, this is not a big town. And it's an agricultural town where sheep are raised. And they are largely the sheep who will be used in temple sacrifice. But more importantly, it's where King David grew up. Maybe uh, four miles or so from Jerusalem. It's, it's down uh, in the plains uh, below Jerusalem. And just as was foretold, out of Bethlehem, David's town, would come one from David's line who would rule over David's kingdom as the anointed one of God. This is is Matthew's point to establish Christ as king. And this ruler will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Thumbs up, thumbs down. You think he's going to go and worship him? Yeah, that's not really going to happen. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, just real quick, contrast the reaction of these pagans, these Gentile magi. In all likelihood, the the magi, at least in most cases, uh, were Zoroastrians. This is... To, to, in a nutshell, just to cut to the chase, this is anything but Judaism, right? This is a pagan form of religion, but they recognize that Daniel's God is powerful. Now, you can wrestle with and debate for yourself whether or not these are true seekers of the Messiah. I think based on their reaction, I think they are. We're not really told, but what we are told is that when they find the Messiah, according to the scriptures that they had read, according to the prophecies, they find the Messiah and they are what? Overjoyed. When Herod hears about it, he was disturbed. The king of the Jews doesn't like the idea. These Gentile kingmakers, if you will, they're excited. They're overjoyed. Stark contrast. 
They went on their way. The star led them there. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, again, notice the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. I don't know about you, I've, I've been to a lot of newborn places and I see a lot of babies. I've never worshipped one of them. They recognize Christ for who he is. They are used to being around kings. That's what they do. But they come and they find this baby, not in Jerusalem, in the palace, but here in a humble carpenter's home and they bow down and worship him. Even the, the, the physical movement of bowing down, there's a humility in this. It's not just saying we're worshiping him, but they're humbling themselves. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Without delving into that, these are recognized as royal gifts, gifts for a king. And they've been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they return to their country by another route. And notice what happens in case you're not sure about Herod's intent. Maybe he changed his mind. Maybe he's going to worship him. I don't think so. Verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That's not the same as worship. 14, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night. Notice, by the way, that it never refers to Joseph as the father, just Mary as the mother. Joseph may have have fathered him in the sense of being his daddy and, and raising him, but he was never a part of the process of this. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew focuses heavily on the fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. That's, you know, something we usually leave out of the Christmas story stuff. You don't see a lot of, you know, warm and fuzzy movies about that. But remember what John said. This is the verdict. Lights come into the world. But you're so full of evil, you didn't want it. People loved darkness instead of light because our deeds are evil and we don't want our deeds to be exposed. And Herod doesn't want his deeds to be exposed. He doesn't want anybody to take away his power, his prestige, not even the one who God is sending. So the king of the Jews rejects God's king so that he can maintain his own comfort, pleasure, power, prestige. And in case you think Herod is some terrible person, you might want to look in the mirror because we tend to do that same thing. No, we don't kill a bunch of babies in Bethlehem, largely because we're not king in Jerusalem. But the number of things that we have done over the course of a lifetime that are inexcusable, but we rationalize so that we can protect our own reputation. I'm going to stop there because I'm going to end up going on a side trail that's going to take us way too long. But just understand that we tend to cover up our sin with greater sin to try to keep from getting caught or having to face the consequences of our foolishness or our selfishness or even our mistakes, we then go deeper and deeper and our bad choices have victims, just like Herod. We live in a society that embraces doing whatever is required to maintain the status quo. We want comfort. We want to protect our reputation at any cost.
We want to make sure that nothing gets in the way of our plans. We even put these things into law to make sure that we protect the rights, so-called. That's not any different than what Herod's doing. He killed innocent children by the dozens. However many that, that was, he killed these children because of his own wicked heart. We have spent 50 years killing innocent children to pursue our own way. Verse 17, this is what was said through the prophet Jeremiah. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Matthew gives us this account to show the fulfillment of prophecy, to establish the identity of Jesus as the king from David's line. To point out to us that those who were present, who were not vested in trying to protect some myth, those who were opposed to it, recognized the identity of Christ as the promised king. The identity of Christ as king is fundamental to our understanding Christmas and his coming. But it's fundamental to our understanding who he is so that we can rightly put ourselves in relationship with him. Until we recognize that Christ is king, Lord of lords, ruler of all things, then we don't really understand that he gets to call the shots. If it's just some religious idea that, you know, Jesus is nice, you know, we like that. We want to have salvation or whatever that means. But if there isn't a king against whom we have committed crimes, whom we have betrayed, then the grace of God in Christ doesn't mean very much. Unless there is a law, then there isn't a crime, right? We can recognize that. If there's no law against stealing, then stealing becomes not that big a deal, or at least so we see it. It's still wrong. It still violates it. But we, we don't understand it Apart from that, when we begin to see Jesus as king, the one who rightfully has the authority to tell us what to do, for an easy way to say it, if he gets to decide what is right and wrong, and he gets to decide that, that you and I are uh, going to live in heaven with him in, in eternal joy or face eternal wrath then that would be really, really wrong and foolish if he's not the rightful authority, if he's not the king. But if he is, if he is God, if he created everything, if he sets the rules, then it really doesn't matter what I think because he doesn't need my permission. Christ's identity as king is fundamental won't spend as much time on the rest of the points, but because it's so fundamental, I want to make sure we understand that. So Christ's identity as king is fundament, fundamental. <clears throat> Notice also Christ's glory as king is inexpressible. If he is king, then he receives the glory of the king. He is the glory of God. 
Turn to 2 Peter, all the way toward the back of the book, not quite to Revelation, but where the books get skinny right in front of that. Turn to 2 Peter. In most of your Bibles, that will come right after second, uh, right after First Peter. If you have Third Peter, throw that away and get a real Bible. <coughs> second Peter, chapter one. Let's take a look at verses sixteen to eighteen. Peter is explaining in his letter the authority that they have. And in so doing, he points out the glory and majesty of Christ. Verse 16 says it this way. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory. Saying, this is my son whom I love in him or with him I am well pleased we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain he here is referring to Luke chapter 9 you don't have to turn there but I don't think it's listed in your program so you might jot it down in Luke chapter 9 verses 27 to 36 we have the account of what we often refer to as the transfiguration this is one of those moments when the glory that belongs to christ breaks through the facade of his humanness his glory is veiled as he walks the earth as a man but every once in a while we get glimpses of that glory and in this particular moment in luke chapter 9 Jesus has his disciples stay behind and pray, the, the few that come with him there, and they stay behind and pray, and he goes up on the mountain where he meets with Moses and Elijah. Now, that by itself is mind-blowing. But what happens next is even more mind-blowing. As Jesus has this special moment he is transfigured and he shines with radiant glory in such a way that when he comes down from the mountain, Peter, who is going to speak anyway, has no idea what to say. So he's like, uh, should we build a shelter for you guys? You know, Because Jesus is glowing and we see this radiant, majestic glory and they hear the voice of God saying, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. Peter's saying, our, our authority didn't come from some clever story we made up. We saw him. We were there with him. We got to see the majestic glory. Ephesians 1, you could turn there if you would. Just page back to the left a little bit. Not too far. If you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you went a little too far. <clears throat> Ephesians in chapter 1 Paul in, uh, in Ephesians is starting out here telling us about the greatness of what God has done for us in Christ but now in uh, verses 18 to 22 he kind of bridges he goes from that to the glory of Christ and specifically the glory of Christ that he receives in his church uh, we'll pick up with uh, 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In other words, that God will open your eyes, that you can see. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In the first part of chapter 1, he's talked about how God has blessed us with every blessing every spiritual blessing in Christ, already ours in the heavenly realms. And he talks about the grace of God to us and all of the things that God has done for us and adopting us as his children is to the praise of his glorious grace. Now he prays that your heart, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened to see this, verse 19, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is, is like the working of his mighty strength, 
which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Notice, not only head over everything, but specifically for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. A separate sermon we won't preach today, but the church is to be his glory in the earth. The, the manifestation of God's glory now is in his church. His identity as king is fundamental. Christ's glory as king is inexpressible. It's great. And his authority is beyond our comprehension. Christ's authority as king is limitless his authority as king is limitless notice what we just read in ephesians that god has placed everything under his feet there's nothing not under his feet there's nothing not under christ's authority jesus himself says in matthew 28 18 all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me for that reason he launches into the great commission all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. This is a huge, huge thing. I'm going to have you turn to Revelation 19. We'll, we'll see it again at the end, so you may want to stick something there to notice. If you go all the way to the back of the book, you find the book of Revelation. Revelation is 22 chapters long, so 19 is pretty easy to find. Revelation 19, verse 16. Speaking of Christ, John writes, On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is our Christ. His authority as king is limitless. He is the king over all kings. He is the Lord over all things, over all lords. He created everything, and therefore he has authority over everything. Again, quoting Abraham, Abraham Kuyper, as we did recently, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Christ's authority as king is limitless. Notice also Christ's humility as king is unimaginable. Christ's humility as king is unimaginable. We recognize this clearly affirmed in Philippians chapter 2. As Paul is calling the church to behave in a Christ-like way, he says your, your mindset, your attitude should be just like his. Starting in chapter 2 verse 5, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. That, that's, that's it, right? He's, he is God. Jesus is God. But being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus left the throne of heaven to be an embryo in a virgin's womb, to grow up in poverty in a small town in a dirty, dusty part of history without indoor plumbing. You know, we, we maybe take some of these things for granted. It's, it's not like he just came to where we are now. We, we're pretty comfortable. He came when they didn't have modern conveniences. They didn't have medicine as we know it. The God of heaven, the king, left the throne to come and humble himself to be here with us. And on top of that, he made himself obedient even to death on a cross in our place. 
because of that, because he did what he came to do, we see in verses 9 to 11, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Christ's humility as king is unimaginable. Notice also Christ's return as king is certain. Christ's return as king is certain. Matthew 24 and 25, you don't have to turn there, but our memory verse is from there today, so you can see it in your program. Matthew 24, Jesus is giving, uh, giving his disciples a, a heads up, if you will, about the things that will happen before the end comes, before he returns the signs of his coming. And in Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Christ's return as king is certain. And he says in Revelation 22, 20, Behold, I am coming soon. Notice, Christ's power as king is irresistible. Christ's power as king is irresistible. We saw already the power and glory and authority he's given in Ephesians 1. In Revelation 5, 5, I'd love for you to read the whole first 14 verses there, but we're not going to do that right now. In Revelation 5, 5, he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We've established that, that the scepter would never leave Judah. From Genesis 49, we see that, that uh, as, as uh, Israel was blessing his sons, he gave this ruling authority to Judah. Jesus is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He came as a lamb to save us, but he will come as a lion to rule us. Three times we see in the book of Revelation that Christ will rule with an iron scepter. The, the prophecies we see in the book of Isaiah establish peace, but it's peace through strength that this one who would come and rule will crush the enemies of God. And because the enemies of God are crushed and sin is destroyed, peace. Not through negotiation, but through power, the rule of an iron scepter. See also this next part, Christ's dominion as king is everlasting. Christ's dominion as king is everlasting. I've mentioned a couple of times so far, Genesis 49.10, that the scepter would not depart from Judah. In Daniel chapter 2, we see a picture of the Son of Man. Jesus' number one way of referring to himself. And the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and is given authority without end. His dominion is everlasting. Even as we see in Isaiah 9.6, as Gary read for us earlier, that the government will be on his shoulders and of his government, of his dominion, of his rule, there will be no end. This is both time and scope. Christ's dominion as king is everlasting. This could be a terrible thing as we see the power, the irresistible power, and the overwhelming, overarching scope, the duration that is everlasting, the limitless reach I don't know about you, but I've been around government stuff enough to not think that's a good thing, right? I saw Animal Farm. I know how this works. How can it be good to have a dictator who has every part of your life under his feet? It's good because of this. Christ's justice as king is perfect. Christ's justice as king is perfect. 
We've looked at Isaiah 9 a few times. Gary read it for us. I've quoted it. I want to just draw your attention to verse 7. It's a familiar passage. We hear it every year. It's in Handel's Messiah. But we see in verse 6, we'll read 6 leading into 7 so that we get it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever just a a few pages from there we see in chapter 11 verses 3 and 4 he will delight in the fear of the Lord he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears but with righteousness he will judge the needy with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The character of this king is unimpeachable. Christ's justice as king is perfect. But this presents a problem for us. We're not suited for perfect justice because we don't deserve God's pleasure. Perfect justice demands his wrath. Sin separates us from a holy God. So if Christ reigns and he rules with power, unlimited reach, and absolute perfect justice, that sounds good. We usually want justice, right? We certainly don't want injustice, but we just don't want to fall under the boot of justice. Therefore, it's important for us to recognize That Christ's compassion as king is incomparable. Christ's compassion as king is incomparable. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Christ is the king who sacrifices himself. He sacrifices himself not for loyal subjects, but for those who would usurp his throne. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11, the prophet speaks of the one who would come leading his flock like a shepherd, gently leading those who are with young. In John 10, verse 11, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, and that good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. His compassion is incomparable. Isaiah 42, 3, speaking again of the Messiah, Isaiah prophesies that a bruised reed he will not break. He'll be a gentle king, all-powerful, ruling with an iron scepter, crushing the enemies of God, but not breaking a bruised reed. In Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ's compassion as king is incomparable. So what does all this mean? That's all well and good. It's nice. Thank you. We got the four Ps for our four weeks of Advent. That's nifty. Now, what does this mean in real life? What does it mean that the Christ who came will reign in power forevermore? What does it mean in the memory verse when we see that the, the Son of Man coming in His glory and all of His angels with Him means that He will sit on His glorious throne? Well, what it means is that Jesus Christ, the Christ who came, is the hope of all mankind and specifically, particularly of those who trust in him. He is the hope of the human race, 
because apart from him there is no hope. Take a look around you. It's all falling apart. It really is all going to hell in a handbasket. And the idea that things are going to get better through government or through education or through technology is not only a fallacy of the highest order, it is a deceitful lie from the devil who wants us to think that in our strength, we can, just like in the Tower of Babel, we can build a better world. We can be like God. We can fix it. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That is a hopeless, hopeless endeavor. But because Jesus is the king who will reign in power over all things, he's the hope of all mankind. But in a specific and particular way, he is the hope for individuals for those who put their trust in him. You see, the enemies of God, as we've said already, will be crushed. But those who come on their faces in humility will be saved. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. No one who comes to him will be turned away. Because he is God and will reign as God over all things for all eternity, there is nothing beyond the scope of his power. There's nothing beyond the scope of his authority. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and he's Lord of lords. There won't be an option. Those who receive him now will do so willingly, joyfully, sharing in his victorious reign. Those who reject him as king, serving their own purposes, will do so with weeping as they receive the condemnation they rightly deserve. In any case, all things will be brought into alignment with his perfect righteous rule. No sin, injustice, Sadness or suffering will remain, and he shall reign forevermore. Amen. His judgment of sin will be swift, furious, perfect, and irresistible. If not for his first advent, in which he came to offer peace and goodwill according to his great mercy, no one here would have any hope. But right now, is the moment of salvation. His birth was, as the song says, the dawn of redeeming grace. His death, the atoning sacrifice. His resurrection, the affirmation of God's full delight in His Son. Don't wait. Receive His offer of grace and receive life through His Son. Those who belong to Him will experience the everlasting joy of reigning with Him. In the end, all things will be made right. If you already know him, if you have received him, and you belong to him, you've been united with Christ, then praise God, your eternity has been settled in him. But if that's the case, how dare we work through this Christmas season comfortably with the darkness all around us, and the light in our hearts and in our hands needing to be held out to others. Let's praise God and give him all the glory. And let's make sure that others are able to know him because we understand the reality of who he is. May the Lord, the Christ who came and is coming again to reign in power forevermore, receive all glory and honor through his church, both now and in the age to come. Let's pray. Father God, as we close this service, we are in the midst of a very busy time of year. Lord, <laughs> it's entirely likely that even, even now, even during this, this time of focus, that many of us have our hearts distracted by our lunch plans, what we're going to do this afternoon, the, the shopping we still have left to do, the, 
the events of the next couple of weeks. Oh, Lord, steal that from us. Break the calluses on our hearts. Help us to sing with all creation to our Lord and King. May our hearts from the depths of us cry out joy to the world. The Lord has come. In the name of that great King who is coming again, we pray. Amen.